everyone, this is Anna Soper. Welcome to episode 10 of Teen People, the podcast that catches up with folks from Teen People magazine. This episode is a first for me. I'm talking with a Teen People staff member. Zena Burns was entertainment director at Teen People magazine and managing editor at teenpeople.com. Teen People's earliest digital outreach relied on an AOL-exclusive website and a celebrity chats feature that Zena described as something like a tin can and a string. Digital Today has made such a quantum leap, she told me, changing media, marketing, and publishing in so many ways. Think about the media environment back then. The first iPod came out in October 2001. Napster was in its infancy. MySpace was founded in 2003, and many of us still had dial-up internet, which ran over a landline telephone. And think about the celebrity environment, tabloid mainstays like the Olsen twins, Lindsay Lohan, and Britney Spears. Before celebrities shared all on Instagram, we had reality shows like The Simple Life with Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, The Osbournes with The Osborne Family, and Newlyweds with Nick Lachey and Jessica Simpson. Is this chicken or is this fish? Zena spoke with me about hustling her way into a job at Teen People and how the magazine changed her life. Stay tuned for exclusive stories about Beyonce, Kanye West, and Lady Gaga. All right, connecting, connecting. Can mm-hmm. you hear me? I can hear you. Can you see me? Uh, I am going to pin your video. I'm pinning you your video. <laughs> there, we're good. Excellent. Well, thank you. So, it's so great to talk with you. I just, I'm, I was, I mean, tickled is a funny word, but I was, I was just really thrilled um, when, when I found your, when I, when I found your podcast, cause I, one, I thought it was well done. I love your explanation for why you started it. And I, I just, I mean, teen people is just an amazing, amazing part of so many people's lives in so many different ways. And I was really, I was really happy to hear that it Im- impacted you in some form or fashion. Oh, well, thank you. I'm so glad uh, to, to know that it's, it's touched you like that. And, and I'm also really glad that you reached out to talk with me uh, on Instagram and that you were willing to join me and, and talk in this interview about your experiences with teen people. Of course. I just, I just wanted to tell you when I reached out that, that I was a fan of what it is that you did. I know your focus is the people who appear in the pages. And whenever I did, it wasn't about me. It was about, nor should it have been. Um, but I just wanted to reach out, reach out and, and tell you that I was a fan. Thank you. Well, I think that you can provide some really excellent context for some of the work that I've been doing with this project. And, uh, and that'll be interesting. I hope for listeners, it'll certainly be helpful for me as I move forward with the project. I also appreciate the amount of information that you sent me, uh, the, the background information about your career path and what you've been doing, and also your feelings about uh, where you've been in your career. Because you said that you were heartbroken when teen people folded. Devastated. Devastated. A, a lot of people were. There wasn't a dry eye. There was not a dry eye in that room when, mm-hmm. when, the, when the information came across, including from the people who had to share the information. It had to happen for a number of different reasons. It was, you know, maybe just time. Uh, but yeah, I don't think anyone took, took joy in that, in that move. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your start at Teen People. That seems to be your first big media job. How did you get in there? Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, it's funny when I work with young people sometimes who just are looking for a mentor and trying to find their first job. I'm like, well-written cover letter. <laughs> like well-written cover letter that is about what you can do for them versus what you want them to do for you. And that's, and that's really, and that's really what it was. I went to college in Chicago, dropped out after a couple of years to work for a record label that um, was owned by some members of the Smashing Pumpkins and Fountains of Wayne and a number of, of other folks, but an indie label. Uh, and at a, at a certain point, they stopped operating in Chicago, and this gentleman named Jeremy Freeman, who was the head of the label, he said, hey, if you want to work in media, oh, I really think you need to move to New York. You know, Chicago's just not the market for it. And he, and I didn't, I didn't have any money. My family didn't have any money. How do you move to New York without any money? I took a part-time job uh, at an airline, specific, doing reservations. Uh, on ATA, you're on vacation. This is Zena. How may I help you? (laughs) I took that part-time job to supplement my full-time gig uh, specifically to get flight benefits. 
so that I could fly to New York and interview and look for apartments because I knew I wasn't going to be able to be there for very long without a job. That's so smart. And well, it was, I had to be scrappy because I just didn't, you know, my family's wonderful, but didn't have the financial resources and all that. So I found, as I was researching, I found on the New York New Media Message Board, um, back in the day, there was, there was a posting for a community manager at Teen People Online. No, not .com, because we were AOL exclusive at that point. And this was in early 1999. It was shortly after launch. And um, part of the job, part of the requirements for community manager was being able to book and execute celebrity chats. And I said, oh, I've just spent all of this time working with bands. At the time, the Pumpkins were the biggest band in the world. I can do that. <laughs> so I, um, I got a New York post office box that, <laughs> like a mailbox, boxes, et cetera. So it kind of looked like a real address. And I got a 917 cell phone number. So it looked like I lived in New York. And I made up a story about I was in the process of moving from Chicago to New York to move in with a boyfriend who, that's why I was back and forth. Boyfriend was non-existent. Apartment in New York was non-existent. <laughs> and I just really, it was, it was a cold outreach. And I just really crafted my pitch, crafted my pitch to them saying, hey, I'm really passionate about the digital space. I've worked with artists, this, that, and the other thing, granted a smaller scenario. And what flew out a few times for interviews, white knuckled because it was space available and because I was flying for free and I didn't know for sure that I was going to be able to get on. Um, but yeah, the well-crafted cover letter and that, that really kind of played to what they were trying to accomplish with that role, along with my fakery, with <laughs> acting like I was lived in New York when I really did not, um, ended up paying off. And a woman named Laura Smith K there took a chance on me and, uh, I, I moved to New York with $600 in my pocket and a friend who let me crash and this fantastic job. Wow. So I'm getting two vibes here. A, the word moxie comes to mind. <laughs> and, and B, I'm getting like late 80s, early 90s, Meg Ryan romantic comedy vibes. Ooh, I love this. <laughs> I le- that might need to be my evening, rom-com evening. My husband's totally. going to be so exciting, excited about this. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really funny you say, you say moxie because I have a consulting business that's called Moxie Coalition oh. specifically because specifically because I feel like Moxie is 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 a good quality and yeah it all could have fallen apart um my mom was terrified but uh, <laughs> but not good not good it it ended up working out thanks to some really amazing people who just took a chance on some weirdo so you were working in digital media this was the, the sort of the beginning of the digital space in which we're living and working today. Oh my gosh. I mean, going back to 1996, when I was working at, at Scratchy Records, which was the label owned by Darcy and James from Smashing Pumpkins and Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne, who we tragically lost a few months ago due to COVID. Um, Jeremy Freeman, another great folks. You know, 1996... That was very rudimentary websites and emails, just trying to build a street team for bands that were touring, you know, just trying to say, oh, you might be interested in us and you live in Omaha. And if we mailed you these flyers, could you put them up around town? It was still trying to use digital ways to grow a list, but really analog execution. You know, can I get your buy-in? May I mail you these flyers, right? That would never happen today. (laughs) Maybe it would. I don't know. And then jumping to Teen People, where I started in 1999, That's it was obviously on a much higher level. But something that I look back on and laugh is a big part of my job there was booking and executing these celebrity chats. And they were just text like type. There was no live streaming. There wasn't even the capability really to post a photo in real time. It was in most cases me moderating, like being the moderator, taking questions from the audience, and also listening to 
the artist on the phone and typing for them. And people, people, tr people trusted us. I like to think because we held ourselves to very high standards. Very often a publicist would say, oh, so-and-so is going to be on a plane. Can I just answer for him? It's like, absolutely not. Like we have a level of trust with our audience. If Usher is going to be on a plane, Usher needs to call me from the plane and Usher would call me from the plane. Um, <laughs> and then you'd run into these low tech issues. I'll never forget Beyonce and Kelly Rowland called me from Disney World once. And <laughs> they were, and I had to, and the connection wasn't great on the cell phone. So, and I couldn't tell who was who, even though I knew their voices very well. It was just that it was a bad connection. And I was like, ladies, so that I can properly attribute your answers, can you please just say your name at the beginning of your answer? I know it's a pain. I just want to get this right. And the connection isn't good. So at one point, Beyonce started with an answer and I was like, and I'm so sorry, is this Beyonce or Kelly? And she says, this is Beyonce. And my voice tends to be a little bit lower and huskier than Kelly's. I'm like, no, no, no. I know the qualities of your voice. <laughs> it's just the connection is bad. Like it was, so we were still able to connect the audience with the artists that they most cared about. But it was, when you look, when you see how things are done today, it was like with a tin can and a string, yeah. right? But part of what I, part of what I loved about it, even though it was, it was very, very, very basic compared to the way we do things now is it was still connecting people with their passions, right? And the way that digital has evolved, it's just connecting people with their passions in a different, more robust way. Like we used to do those, typing only chats, right? And then we'd get to the point where, okay, we add a visual element into it. You know, the Foo Fighters came into the office. Let's see if we can get a photo up real time with that type of thing. And then we started, you know, building digital programs, the amazing team that worked with our trend spotters, which were, you know, thousands of readers that we really relied on to give us honest feedback about about their lives and the magazine and what was happening using digital to connect in those ways. There were um, amazing people on the Transpotter team who did that. And digital today is, is has just made such a quantum leap. I mean, it's everything. It's changed the face of media. It's changed the face of publishing. It's, it, it, it's just changed everything. And I think that the companies and the brands that aren't digital first um, are just aren't in a good position right now. Mm. If teen people had survived, how do you think they'd be doing today in today's digital climate? You know, I, one of the challenges with teen people was that I think one of the things we did right was that we took the dot-com very seriously. Um, at one point, I was entertainment director for the print book, and I was made managing editor, which is kind of timing's term for editor-in-chief of the website. And one of the thinkings there was that the company just wanted digital and the print book to be totally aligned. But at the end of the day, Teen People was a monthly book. And especially at the rate at which, and we were so rooted in celebrity. I mean, we were the baby book for people, right? So no matter how on point your website is, if your primary business is still tied around the monthly release of a magazine and the lead times to put out a monthly magazine are insane, insane. When you, when you think about the rate at which information travels these days, um, it's just difficult. It's just difficult when the whole business, especially for the young audience is tied around the release of, you know, a print book. Plus at the same time, there were other magazines that started to cover the types of stars that teen people really helped make mainstream. I'll never forget the pit in my stomach that I got the first time that People Magazine ran a Lindsay Lohan cover with a photo that was a red carpet photo from a teen people party where they just kind of photoshopped out the background, which they did, it wasn't anything about teen people. <laughs> but when you started seeing Lindsay Lohan on the cover of the Mothership publication, and then Justin Timberlake on the cover of Us Weekly and all of these things. It's like, oh, I don't know if this audience is going to hang out for a monthly anymore, no matter how on point our digital is and no matter how compelling our content is. If, if the base 
I mean, obviously so, so much unbelievably amazing real, real kid content and real teen content in teen people. But from an entertainment perspective, it, I don't know that a monthly could have survived like that. Mm, that's a good point. And the other thing is that those celebrities were growing up and their fans were growing up too. And so they mm-hmm. weren't reading teen people anymore. They were reading people or us weekly. They were reading their mother's magazines. Exactly. And that's a really good point. And, and part of teen people was that, Hey, we always knew that audience was going to age out, right? We always knew that audience was going to grow up. Hopefully they were going to age out into people and everything. But when the magazine started, I don't know that there was ever really a situation where the quote unquote big books like people would be covering the same stars at the same time. And, and that's one of the many things that ended up happening is that Lindsay Lohan would be on the cover of Teen People and People at the same time, which, you know, the, the whole face of celebrity was changing around that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the rise of reality TV as well. Huge part of it. Huge, huge, huge part of it. Yeah. Our final cover was Catherine McPhee or Carrie Underwood. Either Catherine McPhee or Carrie Underwood, they were around the same time. Uh, But, you know, both American Idol. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I almost wonder if, like, that reality TV era, the Paris Hilton and the the early Kardashian uh, and the the really short-lived reality, celebrity reality shows... Um, were like a bridge between traditional print media for teens and social media. Yes, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more because, you know, American Idol, which was groundbreaking in so many ways, there was an element of participation on like a big real TV show that hadn't really existed or existed on that plane before. Um, smaller versions, yes. Um, so existed not only in the voting capacity and that type of participation, but also I could see myself on that show. I mean, I, Zena Burns, could never see myself on that <laughs> show. I would not do that to um, to the American public. Um, but, um, but yeah, all of a sudden it was, hey, not only can I influence the outcome of this theoretically, but I could be Kelly Clarkson. Social media platforms started to further democratize celebrity where, well, if Kelly Clarkson can do it, although Kelly Clarkson, incredibly capable, amazing, everything, but, you know, and I was just about to go left and say some unkind things about other people, (laughs) (laughs) but I just won't go there. But really this idea that anyone can do it. And in some ways that's, that's beautiful and empowering. And in some ways it's a little bit dangerous, um, with, kids growing up thinking that everything they do is special everything they do is worth putting out there and that's dangerous in very many ways um but i i think you're exactly right about that type of thing being the bridge Mm. so do you see teen people as maybe the first user generated content because that trend spotter program seems like it gave kids all across America and beyond the opportunity to contribute to a magazine, they wouldn't have had that opportunity in an earlier generation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so, the team that worked on Trendspotters was so passionate and so amazing. Janice Gadelli, uh, Christina Elby, Tristan Coopersmith, like, and so many other names that, that um, so many other people who worked so hard on that it really was about the, the whole magazine was about real teens and trend spotters were important because they were, you know, our focus group in a lot of ways. Not only would we reach out to trend spotters be featured in the pages of the magazine, but we would, you know, regularly reach out to them get, to get real feedback about what was going on in their lives that helped shape the editorial. Even on the advertiser front, we would bring them in sometimes to talk to advertisers about like, like, what do you think about this? Where are things going? Just, just, it was so important to every single people who worked at that magazine, whether they worked dedicated on the Trendspotter program or they worked in entertainment or they worked in fashion or they worked in real team coverage, that the magazine reflected the voice of, um, of the reader 
and of the of the teens that we were trying to reach. So yes, very much. Um, it was, I think teen people both in print and digitally was a pioneer when it came to user generated content and really reflecting back the voice of the reader. In many cases, that was actual content that was generated from trans fathers. Another thing that I was tremendously proud of teen people for doing was not using professional models in the pages of the magazine. Like every quote unquote model you saw in that magazine, that was a real that was a real kid. And I, I can't tell you, especially, especially being a lifelong big girl and, <laughs> and growing up a little heavier than my, uh, than, than the other kids at school. I, I cannot tell you just, just personally how moving it would be to me when we would do something like, um, the event that's now known as all access lounge before Z100's jingle ball at, at, in New York. And it was kind of a daytime event for their big Jingle Ball holiday concert. We started that with them. And part of it was a casting call where, you know, there'd be thousands of kids there. We would bring the entire fashion closet. We would bring Haley Hill and George Ramone and the whole fashion team. And we would pick kids out of the crowd to style right there, right, right there on site. And then we'd take them backstage at Madison Square Garden where we built a set backstage and photographed them with the stars that were performing on stage at Madison Square Garden for Jingle Ball. That sounds awesome. Wow. You (laughs) just, just the, just the pride and excitement in the eyes of kids who like had a good look and really like reflected what was going around them, but would never be considered a professional model to be chosen for this to, to reflect the audience in a way that really no other teen magazine in that was doing at that point was, was incredibly gratifying, especially to someone like me who did not grow up as a model. The people who created teen people magazine were a generation or two above the target audience. Uh, So what were the motivations there in terms of, you know, why was there this commitment or passion to bring younger people's stories to life through those younger people themselves. You could have just written about younger people like the other teenage magazines did, but you actually involved younger people. I think aside from the obvious business considerations, like being able to read the tea leaves and seeing that it was a growing market and there was an opportunity to kind of upcycle people into reading people as reading people magazine as, as they got older. I mean, that's just, that's just obvious. Right. But um, there wasn't really anything like it in the market at that point. I mean, other amazing teen books like Seventeen did great work. YM did great work. But in terms of reflecting things, really, really being the voice of the reader, I think part of the reason it was so important to those who developed the magazine, not only did there seem to be an obvious business case for it, but a lot of the people who launched teen people were really fanatical about the space when they themselves were teens. You know, I think about one, one of the founding editors, Lori Majewski, who um, she'd spent time at, you know, YM before coming over and she created, I, I may be getting her title wrong, I apologize, Lori. Um, I believe she was head of the International Duran Duran Fan Club <laughs> or something. And when she was a teenager, she created like the first International Duran Duran fanzine. Again, Lori, I apologize. I'm getting the particulars incorrect, but you know, I'm basically on point with the facts here. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, a passion project for, for a lot of people who I think were trying to create both on the entertainment side and the real teen side, trying to create a vision of what they themselves would have liked to see when, when they were, when they were at that age. And also too, just, just recognizing that being a teenager in, you know, 1999, was, you know, especially digital was just starting to become a thing, but you've got different access to technology. I think it was really just taking a very clear look at what it meant to be a teenager at that point in time versus what it had historically meant to be a teenager and just trying to be very current and very forward and of the moment with everything that was done and not not operate on any assumptions about what it means to be a teenager. Because being a teenager what it means to be a teenager constantly changes. I remember around that time, there was, uh, there seemed to be a sort of a, 
an era of commemoration, uh, especially coming up on the new millennium, the year mm-hmm. 2000, Y2K. There was It was a cultural moment where it seemed like society wanted to kind of commemorate um, the way things were. Uh, so I, I wonder if that maybe fed into the, some of what you were just talking about as well. I think some, I think somewhat in terms, in terms of the commemoration, but I think it was more about forward looking, right? You mentioned Y2K. It sounds really silly to anybody who wasn't in their, in their, at least in their twenties at that point, but Y2K, which if you don't know what I'm talking about was when 1999 turned into 2000, that was a big deal. I mean, for God's sake, Backstreet Boys named their album Millennium. You know, that was, they wanted it that way. Yeah. Y2K was a really big deal. We were embarking on a new millennium. There was, there was legit, again, you're going to laugh at me if you're younger and you don't remember, but there was legitimate fear about what, um, what was going to happen at the stroke, at the stroke of midnight and where all the computers going to go down. The entire grid was going to go down. (laughs) Exactly. I I mean, I've never been a big new year's person. I kind of consider it to be amateur hour, but, um, I didn't, I didn't go out that Y2K. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to be at home with my extra water (laughs) and my battery pack. So I, I think, I think part of it, timing-wise, was um, just all the possibility that a new millennium had and what that meant for teenagers. I mean, teenagers are always at a point or should be at a point where they're thinking about the view of the possible and what does the future look like, this, that, and the other thing. And when you're, when you're at the turn of the century, that's heavier and that's even more meaningful. And I, I think that's part of what fed into teen people's success. I spoke with a member of the news team last week. She was 18 when she was involved with the news team. She's now, uh, she's a journalist. Uh, She works for Vogue.com. So she was saying that she thinks of teen people as a precursor to Teen Vogue, which has seen a lot of success in the last few years for its journalism, for its reporting on the Trump administration. Uh, How do you feel about that comparison? Uh, I I'm honored <laughs> to the to the extent that to the extent that I was involved in Teen People. I, I am a huge fan of Teen Vogue. Uh, I often, often, I was about to say frequently, but that might sound a little insane. I often talk with some of my old Teen People colleagues about what Teen People would be like if we were still around today, and the amazing, amazing work that Teen Vogue has done. I, I am such a huge fan. Um, you know, there's a writer named Julia Carpenter who maybe last year, maybe the year before did a piece for Washington Post, I want to say. I apologize if I'm getting that wrong. Um, but specifically about how, you know, and, and Teen Vogue was very, I hate to say in vogue at the time. <laughs> Teen Vogue was getting a lot of coverage for the type of coverage it was doing it was really starting it was right at the time when it was really starting to push the envelope in all the good ways and julia carpenter did an article on well hey teen magazines have a long history of this type of editorial and pushing the envelope even if um it didn't wasn't executed in the way that teen vogue is doing it now with you know the way that social platforms have evolved i mean to think that you know not only did teen people win the ASME Award for General Excellence, American Society of Magazine Editors. Uh, One year, Teen People won the General Excellence Award up against, like, big magazines. You know, this this wasn't just against teen magazines. It was in the circulation category and still won that General Excellence across huge, huge, huge magazines. Um, One of the things that made me the most crowd. And again, shout out to everyone who worked on this real team coverage was one year team people won the GLAAD award for general excellence. And again, it wasn't general excellence in the team category. It was general excellence for all magazines. Um, so for her to have started at team people and be at Vogue now and to say that team people was somewhat of a precursor of team Vogue, I think is a really huge compliment to everyone who worked on and cared about team people because uh, team Vogue's doing excellent work. 
You make a really good point because it is interesting to look back at these at this collection of teen peoples that I have. Um, this was 20 years ago, but to see the amount of diversity uh, and Lisa, my guest from last week, she she agreed the diversity across all demographics, uh, sexual orientation, racial diversity, diversity of location too. She was very impressed that in the story that she was in, they were featuring suburban teenagers, not just kids from like New York and Los Angeles. So I'm curious uh, to hear your reflections on uh, what must have been a commitment to diversity in, in the offices of teen people. Well, once again, we wanted to make sure that we were reflecting what was actually going on out there. And yes, we could have gone out and booked a bunch of models that weren't really reflecting, no disrespect to models, by the way, but we could have gone out and booked a bunch of models that weren't reflective of what was going on with our readership. And we could have had all of the human interest cover coverage in the magazine um, be about, you know, boys and <laughs> this. And again, no disrespect, but we just really wanted to speak to the people who were going to be buying the magazine <laughs> and interacting with the website on about things that we knew they cared about. Um, we knew that it meant that if they were, you know, not in a traditionally diverse category, chances are they had friends um, and, you know, this and, and um, friends and or family members who were diverse, who were opening their minds to just, just being outside whatever pod it is that you're in. Um, research factored very, very heavily into what we did at all times. There used to be research budgets back in the day. I have some heartbreaking stories around that. Uh, but um, but just, just looking at who was buying our magazine and where they were buying it. And it's like, well, yeah, if we've got kids in the suburbs buying the magazine, how about we not assume that it's aspirational for them to want to be in New York or LA or Chicago? How about we focus on what's going on in those towns versus creating some, some ideal of an aspiration that they may or may not actually have? You know, again, it was really important for us to reflect that and not just make rote assumptions about where all of our readers wanted their lives to go. There were, there were so many research lever, levers that we were able to pull. Sometimes it was, you know, in some cases, you know, we would get focus groups or testing and we would, I mean, we would always ask trend spotters for feedback on what went into the magazine, sometimes before it went in, sometimes after it went in. Um, we would um, oftentimes pull different research lever, levers to get focus groups in and go through page by page of the magazine and kind of rate it. What did you think? One of the sad things was, uh, there was a feature that was very close to my heart every year. It was artist of the year. We would close the year with between five to eight artists that we really thought defined the year. In most cases, we would photograph them, but then we would generally not do an interview with the artist. We would do an interview with someone about the artist and why they were meaningful to. So we had Elton John talking about the killers and <laughs> you know things like that. That was a fun one because my phone rang. Normally it's a publicist who's putting you through, right? So my phone rings from a 702 Vegas number and I assume it's the publicist. I'm like, hi, it's Zena. Hey, it's Elton. And I, in my mind, thought that it was, I have Elton for Zena. And I was like, okay. And I was silent and maybe 30 seconds later, he's like, so do you want to talk or not? I was like, oh, oh, it's Elton. It's Elton. But going back to, going back to research, I was very, very proud to book Stevie Wonder to do a do an interview about Destiny's Child, and how that would work was I would I or whomever was writing it would speak to the artist, and then we would write it in an as told to fashion. We'd get the publicist approval to make sure they were okay with the language, and then it's in their words, right? Had a wonderful talk with Stevie Wonder about how um, how much he thought of Destiny's Child, this, that, and the other thing. Lo and behold, research came back. Nobody knew who Stevie Wonder was. <laughs> reader, oh reader, reader wise. Wow. And, you know, sometimes, but I think it was good to have those checks and balances. We were generally pretty good about let's put ourselves in the shoes. But 
sometimes <laughs> sometimes you get surprised and your readers don't know who stevie wonder is at all by the way if stevie wonder is listening just because you're amazing everybody knows who you are now i promise it was just a weird dead zone like led zeppelin teachers were just getting into hot topic you know kids were just starting to look back digital yeah. has changed things i think millennials um, know who he is now yes well it's well it's especially you know at this time so teen people um, left this mortal coil in 2006. And, you know, that was right at the time when high-speed internet started to become more of a thing, right at the time when YouTube started to be more, become more of a thing, right at the time when our readers were getting access to technology that allowed them to educate themselves more, especially, especially about music and entertainment in general. I mean, when I was... I, I mean, I'm 44. And when I was a kid, how it worked for me is I would read a magazine article about what, uh, with my favorite band talking about the artists they cared about. And then I would physically go to the record store with the article saying, Mike Patton said he really likes <laughs> this band. And I would buy that CD and, you know, it's, it, that's what it used to be like. And teen people, unfortunately, shut down right at the point where the tools to discover these things that made discovery much easier were getting into the hands of our readers. So yeah, I mean, everything happens for, uh, everything happens for a reason. I knock wood have been very happy in my career post team people, but I do oftentimes wonder if we just had two or three more years, what that would have looked like. Hmm. That's a good segue into the next part of your career because you eventually shifted into what became iHeartRadio and then you were at Tidal. Talk a little bit about that transition. The iHeart transition was really natural. It was uh, The company was called Clear Channel at the time and we, um, we'd had a partnership with Z100, which is the big pop station in New York City, which was a Clear Channel slash iHeartRadio station. For years, we'd had a partnership with them. I mentioned earlier about how we would work on their Jingle Ball event with them and their pre-show their pre-show event. And there is not a hotter, harder ticket to get in New York City than Z100's Jingle Ball at Madison Square Garden every year. Because, it, it, I mean, it would sell out even without the lineup being announced because it's just always the hottest, biggest artist of the moment. And Z100 has always done an incredible job of booking superstars, but also having that wild card slot for the last minute edition where just really blowing up at that moment. I think my favorite was Lady Gaga, who was kind of put on the bill at the last minute because she was just blowing up then. And she was waterworks the whole time, <laughs> especially backstage because she would go to that show when she was when she was a kid growing up in New York. And she loved Elvis Duran, the host of the big morning show there. And and oh, I can't believe it's all this dream, all this. <laughs> but we, because Z100 was pop culture and we were pop culture, we had a, a long time relationship with them and just really respected the people who work there. Tom Pullman, Sharon Daster, Darren Pfeffer, Paul Moraldi, amazing folks there. And funnily enough, um, Christina Albee, who was the head of marketing at Team People for quite some time and is just an unbelievable human being, I was at her birthday party one year, and she lived in the same town as Tom Pullman, who at the time was running New York for, uh, for what became iHeart. He's now head of programming for the company. And... Team P, I was still, I was still working at Team People. The magazine had shut down, but I was still working there because I was running the dot-com. The plan was for me to eventually transition to People, although I wasn't sure how I felt about that because I was so heartbroken. Mm. And I just got to talking to Tom and I was like, and he said, hey, you want to come? And he's like, I'm creating this new senior level digital position. Would you be interested in radio? And I, like a jerk, said, oh, I'm never going to leave Time Inc., you know, call me on Monday and I'll give you some names of people who could be good only because it was just in my blood, you know, and I was still, it, it sounds funny to say that I was heartbroken and really emotionally torn up when I still had a job and a paycheck and everything. But I would, but as I thought about his very generous offer and as he did call me on Monday and said, no, really, you really want to have a conversation about this? Like, let's think about this. I was like, Oh yeah, maybe this is a very 
interesting time to move into radio because radio is at the point in 2006 where radio really needed to get serious about digital or face some consequences. And I feel extraordinarily grateful to Tom and everybody who welcomed me at what is now iHeart because I got to do some very fun and interesting things there that that um, were foundational and fundamental to kind of the future of the format. Mm-hmm. And then you were at Tidal very briefly. For five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you told me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two months according to your LinkedIn profile. Yes, five, yes, one month. I don't know how LinkedIn counts uh, May to June is two months, but I eventually went in-house with my favorite client, uh, Futuri, which creates very, very cool podcasting and audience engagement and sales intelligence technology, um, primarily for radio broadcasters and other cool brands and having fun and get to talk to people like you. You've used the word heartbroken a few times. It sounds like teen people was so much more than a job and so much more than a workplace. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, even if I take out the element of spending my twenties there, really only knowing one person in New York with that $600, I started the job right when I moved there and, you know, I'll never forget Kara Schultz coming up to me in the, another entertainment editor coming up to me in the kitchen going, well, I'm just making a little coffee. And she's like, you know, do you like warp tour? You look like you like warp tour. <laughs> you know? so, and, and we were fast friends for life. You know? So even, even taking out the very personal element of just being in your twenties, growing up there, not knowing anyone else in the city. So really your colleagues become your family. Mm-hmm. Also having so many formative experiences. I mean, I, my career has always been kind of backwards in that, you know, when I'm 23 years old, I'm, just working with A-listers and not able to believe (laughs) it's like, what you want me to go where? Like, I mean, I've never been someone who was starstruck that I completely understood the magnitude of some of the, some of the artists and celebrities I was, I was working with. So even taking that personal element out of it, I think the reason I was so heartbroken when teen people shut down, yes, it was much more than a job, but taking my personal situation out, it meant so much to so many people because teen people did cover things in a way that other magazines didn't. Obviously the real teen coverage, we talked about the the GLAAD award and having some, at the time, very controversial topics that we covered in a very clear-eyed way that just that just wasn't happening. It's it might sound hard to understand now if you're younger and you've got unlimited, unfettered access to the internet, but that just wasn't the the case then. So we were really a lifeline for um, for a lot of kids who didn't see themselves reflected in their community, didn't see them themselves reflected in other forms of media, and we tried to. And obviously, huge props and respect to every single person who worked on the real team coverage at Team People. We did also try and infuse that throughout every section of the magazine. You know, if we had an artist who, you know, wanted to talk about a difficult family experience or something like that, we, we treated that with a lot of care. A lot of artists knew that we were a safe space to come to if they had something very difficult that they wanted to talk about that was a little bit more than PR stunt and they really wanted it handled right. But they also wanted to have for their story to have some benefit to the kids who read our magazine, who, who took something from it. That was, we all understood the power of our platform and we never, ever, ever once wanted to squander a second of it because we knew we meant something to people. I had a subscription to YM before I had a subscription to Teen People. And it's true, the difference is night and day uh, because I don't remember YM running stories about homeless teenagers with sensitivity. I don't remember YM acknowledging uh, the death, the murder of Matthew Shepard. Yeah, and that's, and I get it. Because I, I am sure there were editors at YM who maybe would have wanted to cover that, but I, that could have been controversial. You know, that, that could have been a difficult conversation with the business side. I'll never forget when we did a one-page feature, which wasn't particularly heavy or meaty, 
not that it needed to be. We did a one page feature on dashboard confessional. And the story was that like the daughter of a major buyer from target read it. And was like, Oh my God, I can't believe they're featuring dashboard confessional and bought an extra. They ordered an extra 10,000 copies in the magazine. That's the story. I don't know if it's true, but I think it's at least partially true. But by the same token, you might get someone from Walmart who reads that Matthew Shepard story. And it sounds insane to say, and this is not specific to Walmart. They were just the biggest buyer at the time. You might find someone who looks through the magazine and says, this is not a topic that I think should be in front of teenagers in this way. And they don't want to do business with you anymore. It took a level of courage across the board, not just on the editorial team, but on our publishing and business teams as well. Because if, you know what they say, if it's, if it's easy, everyone would do it. Mm. And um, there were some things that we did were just hard, but good and groundbreaking in a good way. Do you think teen people could take those risks, quote unquote, um, because of the umbrella of timing and people? Yes and no. Obviously, Time Inc. and people, you know, 800 pound gorilla, huge, huge, huge company, but you still, what, they have 24, 28 titles. Um, those titles aren't guaranteed placement everywhere, <laughs> you know, obviously it's, it's easier if you're a big, big company, but YM owned by a big company, 17 owned by a big company. So yeah, anytime you're not just an independent publisher and you do have those in-demand must-have magazines like 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 people, I think that helps, but there's also an element of, um, you know, sort of bravery and risk-taking on the part of, of the people, you know, just at that title themselves in addition to their superiors to say, hey, we're seeing, we're seeing a shift in, <laughs> we're seeing a shift in the way these topics are discussed. We're seeing a shift in the audience. We think we have an opportunity to tackle certain topics head on in a manner that some other publications are dancing around, high risk, high reward. And it, it was high risk, high reward. And, and fortunately the, the reward paid off, not only in teen people being as big as it was at the time, but more important to me is the fact that to this day, I will occasionally meet new people where it comes up in conversation where I was at Teen People and they talk to me about how they read some, or sometimes it's about Britney and Backstreet and NSYNC and that's fun and that's cool. But when, when people say, oh, I remember because of the coverage of Matthew Shepard or because of homeless teens or things like that. I, I very frequently will have people parrot back that coverage to me and they remember it all these years later. That's what's really cool to me. We, we tried to make it a point to always be resource focused because again, it sounds weird if you're younger, but not everyone had unfettered access to the internet. And it's like, all right, if this magazine is, is your lifeline. If you're, if you're living in the middle of Kansas, you don't, you can't, you don't necessarily just go on the computer and say, all right, what's the helpline number for this? You know, so we try, we tried to be very cognizant, um, not only of diversity of location, diversity of race and ethnicity, but diversity of access to information. As a librarian, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> love That's a great, that. great impulse. Were there areas in which teen people failed in your Oh, opinion? I'm sure there are. Um, hmm, were there areas in which teen people failed? The short answer is yes. I am trying to come up with some specific examples. If I had to do it all over again, we shouldn't have put Clay Aiken on the cover. <laughs> Sorry, Clay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um no I, I do think I do think we all I I do think we all wanted to we we took we took a lot of good risks but there were um there were always things we wanted to do that we just didn't get to either you know because maybe we didn't have the fight in us for that particular for that particular story or we had to make we had to make cuts for space. I will say maybe it was a mistake to not more heavily prioritize digital earlier 
But I will say that with the caveat of public magazine publishing in general was very slow to embrace digital. And I think teen people was on the very front end of adoption for magazine publishing in general. So I do think we did a good job as it related to our world of magazine publishing. I do also feel if we had gotten an earlier step on that and prioritized it earlier, maybe, maybe teen people still would be around if we had been quicker to kind of prioritize digital and shift to a model where, you know what, maybe it's, it's digital first and the print book is a compliment. Maybe the print book isn't monthly. Um, I, I do maybe think it was a mistake to, to, to not think uh, seriously about the model earlier, but at the same time, we, I think we're ahead of the rest of the industry and everything happens for a reason. I think also that would have been a really hard sell to an older generation who was probably higher up in power at your parent company. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will say for the, for the leadership there, you know, at the time, Ann Moore, who was running the show at, at, um, at Time Inc., you know, Paul Kane, who was <laughs> incredible, um, not that much older than any of us, um, David Geithner, so many people there. Um, they sort of knew what they didn't know in a lot of ways and were willing to, um, were willing to put trust in some of the younger people on staff. I say that and Paul and David were not that much older than (laughs) the staff, but you know, there, there was a period of time when there were renovations. We were on the 35th floor at the time in life building at 50th and 6th in Manhattan. And the executive floor, which was the floor where all the Uber executives for all of Time Inc. were, where they all had their private bathrooms and their office and everything. That was the 34th floor. Well, for a period of time, I think there were renovations on the 34th floor. So Ann Moore, who at the time was head of the people group, but also she went on to be CEO of Time Inc. For a period of time, her she moved her office to the 35th floor and she was about two doors down from my office. And I'm 23, 24 years old. And she would come in sometimes and say, Zena, I just on VH1, I saw this behind the music the other night. And TLC was on, and they were talking about how they went bankrupt. And they did the math on the show, but can you give me some background about how they actually went bankrupt? Like, there's kind of a level of curiosity from on that super, super senior executive level, where I think she was very happy to be on the team people floor and talk about things that were very current and have that kind of youthful you know, infusion into her day, not only because she maybe was personally curious, I know she had, she had a, a, a young teenage son at the time, but I feel like from an executive level, there was on, there was a level of intellectual curiosity with a bunch of the older Uber execs that we, you know, indulged. So, so, so for the most part, there was, there were certain notable exceptions, but, but for the most part, I think the older uh, executives there tried to understand and knew what they didn't know. I'm really impressed to hear that because they could have been quite isolated, but as you say, it sounds like they had an intellectual curiosity. Yeah. And, and, and in fairness, some were like, that wasn't, that wasn't everybody, but to have Ann Moore come into my office asking me about, you know, TLC behind the music, um, and, and had this wonderful assistant named Seal McCarthy who like developed a fascination with Lil Bow Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so anytime I was on the 34th floor for any reason, I'd see Seal and she'd say, Zena, how's Shad Moss? Because that's <laughs> that's Lil Bow Wow's real name. How's Shad Moss? And just stop and have a conversation with the CEO's assistant about what Shad Moss is doing these <laughs> days. You know, if, and if teen people had been a flop coming out of the gate, I'm not sure that there would have been that level of intellectual curiosity. But fortunately, thanks to the incredible launch team and, and, and just everybody who contributed team people is very successful out of the gate, which I think helped lead to some of that intellectual curiosity. Right. So they knew they had something. Yes. Yes. Oh, we're making money on this. Maybe (laughs) I, maybe I should educate myself about TLC and Shad Moss. (laughs) Um, what was your best celebrity encounter at Teen People? 
Oh my gosh. I really need to have a, I really need to have a, a better answer for this because, um, there was, there were so many, I really need like a, a, a packaged answer. Um, there are definitely certain people I enjoyed more than other Beyonce. It's always been wonderful. And we, we met her so early that when she introduced herself, she she's introduced herself as Beyonce. It rhymes with fiance Aww. because it was so earlier that people were calling her Beyonce, <laughs> which doesn't even sound. <laughs> but it has the accent on the E. You know that, and I know that. Yeah, see, I'm a Canadian, so I know that. I did Thank French immersion. <laughs> Another reason I love Canada. You know the accent, Agu. Like, I know. See, we know what's up, but general public calling yeah. her Beyonce. All right, Beyonce. so someone like Beyonce saying that. Um, I was, I was always really um, happy and proud that we um, that we tended to take a chance earlier on certain hip hop artists than others would. Um, I was, it it sounds very strange to say now, especially with many aspects of the situation, but in this, in the team market, we were really first on Kanye West and I spent like quite a bit of time with him where he would actually, um, he seemed very, very excited to get in front of that audience and, but also get your feedback on whatever it, whatever it was he was doing at the time, be that, you know, he'd always invite you to the studio because, whether or not he took your notes, he seemed to want some type of feedback on the music or, hey, I just finished this video. What do you think about this? Like, it was very interesting to work with him at that point because I I remember interviewing him. For, <laughs> I remember interviewing him for a cover story and the interview took place at a studio where he was um, recording late registration. And I remember... I'd spent a lot of time with him, but that was a sit down interview. And I remember thinking, I remember being reminded of the scene in Pretty Woman at the beginning of the movie where Richard Gere has the super blingy car, and but he doesn't know how to drive it. So he's having a hard time with it. And then Julia Roberts gets in and she knows how to drive the car. And she's like, this baby corner's like it's on rails. You know, <laughs> she like knows how to drive the car. I was like, Kanye West is like that sports car in Pretty Woman. Like he has this incredible power. And if he figures out how to use his power, he's going to be Julia Roberts and drive it beautifully. And if he doesn't figure out how best to use his power, he's going to be like Richard Gere and have a lot of trouble driving this thing. And um, that, that really has stuck with me for years. Mm, I feel like he's done both of those things simultaneously. Perhaps, perhaps. And, and I, you know, I don't, he's, he's still young. That is true. That is true. And it's interesting that, you know, you've told me that, that he was very engaged with team people. I wonder if the artists, you have a strong sense of their visual brand and the entire package um, are the ones who were close with the magazine. That, you know what, that, that's, that's I, I, very insightful of you. I think because toward um, toward the end, toward the final days of Teen People, in some cases, when People Magazine would start to sort of book some of the celebrities that we would normally book, they'd be quote unquote our celebrities, and they try and go after some of these guys. You would think that People Magazine, with a readership of forty four million people a week and coming out weekly, you'd think that they would get that booking one hundred percent of the time by sheer you know, the volume of readership that they were bringing to the table, but they wouldn't always win the booking. And sometimes team people got the booking because we were able to cover things more thoughtfully because we were monthly, because we had the space and the budget to put together a beautiful fashion shoot and, and really um, hammer home what the artist was trying to get across visually versus a one, two, or three page quick hit in people, which is still incredible, but it's just not as visual, you know, that's more about, that's more about tonnage, right? And just getting a certain story across. So I think it's very insightful of you. I did think the artists that were, had a very strong sense of their visual brand really gravitated to teen people because it wasn't just, oh, hey, here's Rihanna, you know, she's a hot new star, whatever. It's all right, well, you know, let's go and do an eight page feature 
on Rihanna, who's from Barbados and all of her favorite bathing suits. And then, you know, this type of, that type of thing was, was very, and the, the fashion and art and photo team at Team People were just second to none, mm-hmm. just second to none. So there was a, a tremendous amount of trust there in the artist community that when they entrusted their visual brand to Team People, that the fashion art and photo teams would be collaborative, they would be respectful, and they would deliver unmatched quality. We might not have known what the future would hold at the time, but in an era prior to um, having everybody having a phone and being, especially with the quality of phone cameras these days, you know, being able to do these professional grade shoots. I mean, I'm not even sure we had those flip cams in 2006 <laughs> by the time, like, you know, we, the, the technology just wasn't in the hands of average kids, average folks, period. I think that what teen people was doing visually was a precursor to what you see today. Mm. Do you have any of your teen peoples left from that time? It's so funny you mentioned that because I, um, <laughs> I am in the process of moving. It has been a very long and arduous move, but just the other day I found two cases of Teen Peoples and they made me so, so happy. You know, I've been very, very, very lucky in that I've been able to tick off the box for everything that I've really dreamt of doing, which I never in a hundred million years grown up in Detroit, (laughs) you know, with not a connection to save my life without a trust fund, I, I never thought that would be the case. Now, and I do this, I, I do this a lot in my current role at Futuri. I'm about doing interesting work with people I really like and respect and can learn from. And that's the people around me every day that at the company at which I work, that's the partners that we work with. That's the other thought leaders that I work with on things like conferences. Um, I feel it. I feel it very freeing to say, "All right, I want. I want to do take care of this milestone, this milestone, and this milestone." And now I just want to be happy and learn. What advice would you have given your 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 younger self on your very first day at Team People? Just because there's an open bar at the work event does not mean that you need to drink as much as you possibly can. <laughs> That's, that's very relevant for your early 20s. Good advice. <laughs> early 20s, being broke, you know. <laughs> um, that is, that is uh, a big piece of advice that I would have given myself. Uh, were I speaking to a younger version of me that did not have that concern? Hmm. Uh, I, would, I, I would really say to uh, play the long game. Some of the greatest career advice I ever got, it was from Martha Nelson, who she then was uh, head of the people group and eventually editor-in-chief of Time Inc. And she said, long life, long career, which was is something that has been my North Star for my entire career. It's sort of a broader version of the people you see on the way up or the same people that you're going to see on the way down, <laughs> but a little broader and more positive. Long life, long career. And especially in industries, you know, if you, if you're an accountant in Chicago and, you know, you move to Saskatchewan to become an accountant, like, yes, people network, but that's not necessarily your, if you did something bad in Chicago, it's less likely that it's going to follow you to Saskatchewan or even San Diego or wherever than it would if you were in a relatively small media, radio, entertainment, whatever industry, and ultimately everybody knows everybody. So that long life, long career thing is incredibly important to anyone that's in any type of small-ish industry. And really for your accountants, your lawyers, whatever, like the bigger pools, it's still important because you never know who knows who. Nice Canada reference there. Shout out to Miss Backer, my eighth grade uh, teacher from Saskatoon. When I reminisce on my time at Teen People, the things that really stand out to me are one on a personal level, having made lifelong friends. Uh, I got married two years ago and to look out onto the crowd to see how many people I met at Teen People and became dear, dear, dear friends of mine at Teen People who flew to Chicago to celebrate with 
me and my husband 20 years after I met these folks. I'm so grateful for the lifelong friendships that I forged there and to be able to learn from the best in the business. That was incredible on a personal level. And then on a broader level, I am really proud of what team people was able to accomplish and of which I was a small, 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 small cog. I was really proud of what team people was able to accomplish in terms of making a positive difference in the life of so many people. And in some cases, this was just, you know, seeing their favorite band on the cover of the magazine when they wouldn't get booked on another team magazine. You know, that's, that's, that's one thing. And maybe that inspired that person to a career in music or a career in media or something. But the, the, the coverage that team people did on issues and the things that were tough to tackle and the things that weren't easy to write about and how, how team people wove, tried to weave that in to everything we did. Um, I feel incredibly honored, humbled, and grateful to have been a part of an experience that really was meaningful to so many kids. And how lucky that that was your first job. Oh gosh. I, (laughs) 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 I was, yeah, that unbelievably lucky. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I, to be able to go into doing other fun things at iHeartRadio was very exciting as well. But yeah, there was, I hit the jackpot on first big job. Well, this has been a great chat. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much. I'm, I'm just, as I said, I am, I think what you do is, is so interesting and so well-produced and your questions have been so thoughtful. I really have enjoyed every episode uh, up to this point. I hope, I hope I do your podcast justice. (laughs) And um, frankly, I was surprised you even wanted to talk to me Uh, (laughs) because I really did just reach out to tell, I know it's, I know that the podcast is really about the the kids and as, as well, it should be because so many incredible, you know, stories came out of that. I mean, it's so funny how things come full circle. There are endless stories that have come out of teen people you you could probably do this podcast for the next 10 years if you have the time or inclination because there are that many stories. I think Zena's right. I probably could do this podcast for the next 10 years. If you were featured in Teen People's Real Teen coverage, worked as a trend spotter, or on Teen People's news team, please get in touch. I'd love to hear your memories of Teen People magazine. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Teen People Pod. Coming up, I've got a bonus episode where Zena and I take a trip down memory lane, browsing just a few of the Teen People covers and stories from my collection. And my next guest will be Lucas Pierman, former Teen People news team member and now news director of the Las Cruces Sun News. That's all coming up on Teen People Podcast. Please follow, subscribe, share, review, and join me next time. Thank you for listening.